Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimez. And I'm Dana Lamagir. And today's topic is on the science behind Revelation, the book of Revelation. Gonna be a good one. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from Dr. Hugh Ross, Ken Samples, and John Bloom as they discuss something called moderate concordism. Can't wait to hear what that means. In Science Faith Connection, Jeff Swearink will talk with Hugh Ross about the question, will the Ice Age destroy humanity? Ah! <laughs> I've seen the movies, and there's only like one group of people in it, so yeah. it, it might be yes. <laughs> First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Ken Samples on the question, is there science behind Revelation? So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with philosopher and theologian Ken Samples. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sandra. We're going to be talking about a question that can make some folks nervous. Um, it came in from some viewers just wondering um, if there is science behind the book of Revelation. So that's yeah. a that's a book that some people read with, you know, one eye closed because they get right. nervous about, you know, the things that are going to unfold. Um, but yeah, let's dive into that. So they want to know about the scientific plausibility of some of the phenomena that's mentioned in Revelation. Yeah. How do you address that? I think what's important to begin with is that the Bible has different genres of literature. Mm -hmm. uh, the book of Revelation is the most distinct of all the New Testament books. Mm -hmm. It's known, uh, along with the Old Testament book of Daniel, as being apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. Apocalyptic literature often has a lot of symbolism, uh, events that aren't necessarily meant to be taken literally, right. but symbolize ideas. Uh, those books are by far, I think, I, I think almost universally scholars would say, that's a very difficult book to interpret mm. because of that kind of symbolism. Now, it, it also has history and other things that are connected with it. So the question then is, when we look at the blood moons or mm -hmm. we look at different phenomenon, is that intended to be a natural event that will then fulfill this? Or is that intended to be a symbol? Mm -hmm. Uh, that may convey something uh, further out. And so I would say when it comes to apocalyptic literature that you want to be cautious. Mm -hmm. you, want to, you want to read the text, look for the context, understand that scholars through the centuries have been reading this literature, come to lots of different interpretations. So I, I don't think you want to build doctrine mm -hmm. on the book of Revelation. I, th I think you want to be able to see it and interpret it fairly in light of the rest of the New Testament. I think that's very helpful to talk about genres. Just for, for those who might be unfamiliar, can you kind of go through some of the different genres just so we, yeah. we have a context? Uh, so if we look at, for example, the Gospels, mm -hmm. the Gospels are very similar to what the ancient scholars would call biographies. They're, they're, they're not exactly an ancient biography, but they're much more in that kind of, mm. kind of context. Uh, so the Bible has historical narrative. Uh, the Bible has a, a apocalyptic literature that we mentioned. But you think of the Psalms and the Proverbs where you have, you have uh, uh, wisdom literature, mm. how to live, how to do these kinds of things. 
And any, any good interpretation is going to look very carefully at what's the genre we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So then we have this apocalyptic right. genre for the book of Revelation. Yes. I like what you're saying about that it's symbolism, because I think too often people think it's very literal and these exact things are going to happen. So when we think about like the blood moon, we do see a blood moon. Sure. And that yeah. sends people spiraling or speculating yeah. that. So you see, this is a sign um, that, you know, we're in end times. How do you help people process if they are hearing from others that this is a sign, this is yeah. a sign? How do we, um, how do we gauge that? Uh, I, what I like to do, and I do this in a little book that I wrote, Christian mm -hmm. Endgame, mm -hmm. and I say, look, um, be aware of a couple things happening. Number one, apocalyptic literature is by its very nature difficult to interpret. So I want to be cautious in that way. Secondly, Christian thinkers and scholars have taken differing positions about the millennium, mm -hmm. the timing of the second coming. So there, there's a lot of differences about this. That always gives me the signal that I, I want to be careful. And I, uh, sometimes Christians are taught one view and only one mm -hmm. view, rather than being exposed to a variety of perspectives and then allowed to look and weigh the evidence for them. So, you know, there's no doubt the Bible teaches clearly that there will be a second coming of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But some of the things associated with it, the timing, a lot of that's up for rigorous debate. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember editing that book, Christian Endgame, yeah. and trying to wrap my head around some of these different perspectives on what that's going to look like. And it is, you know, it, it can be overwhelming and... Yeah. Um, difficult, especially in light of, you know, maybe some fear mongering oh, yeah. saying, you know, you've got to do this and that and, and um, kind of worrying people. How, how would you recommend you instill hope in people mm -hmm. who might be struggling with wrapping their head around book revelation and, and really what it all means? I think what's very helpful to me, and I think I've seen it helpful to other people when I've taught about these ideas. And that's the idea that there is, there really is in the New Testament, what I call a mere Christian eschatology. That is, whether you're a-mill or post-mill or pre-mill, whatever position you take, there is a basic Christian teaching about eschatology, one that Jesus will return. When he does return, he will raise the dead. He will then judge the dead. Mm -hmm. He will recreate, and there'll be an eternal state so while we might differ about the timing of uh, the millennium and how all of these things, will there be a wrath before mm -hmm. uh, or after, there is, there is what, and I'm borrowing from, from C.S. Lewis, there's a mere Christian end times. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is the, the second coming of Jesus is called the blessed hope. Mm -hmm. He's going to come. And I think, Sandra, one thing that's really missed when it comes to prophecy and things like that is that it should encourage you now. It should encourage you not to speculate about dates. Mm -hmm. It should encourage you to pursue holiness, mm -hmm. to pursue love, uh, to live a life that is consistent with your, your deepest conviction. And, and so I think sometimes what prophecy means today mm -hmm. is missed. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And I like that you're saying this is 
the second coming would be the blessed hope. So I yeah. hope that it Amen. gives viewers hope or listeners hope. If you would like more on this topic, go to support.reasons.org and search for Ken Sample's fine book, Christian Endgame. Well, today Ken Samples and I have the pleasure of interviewing uh, John Bloom. Uh, he's a physics professor at Biola University, heads up an apologetics program there at uh, Biola University. And uh, today we're going to talk about dual revelation. And Ken, can you set the stage for us? What is this doctrine of dual revelation? Yeah, it's uh, certainly it begins in Scripture. I mean, the Bible talks about uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 talks about Scripture being breathed out by God. Uh, the book of God's world, the book of God's word, if you will. But what's interesting is it has a, it, it's rooted in Christian history as well. Uh, St. Augustine in the Confessions talks about this two books metaphor. Uh, later, the Belgic Confession at the time of the Reformation, Article 2, is probably the most uh, uh, detailed discussion of it. But you even see it in Francis Bacon, uh, the book of God's world, the book of God's word. So I think it's a, it's a great and very important biblical metaphor that's gone through historic Christianity. And today it's really coming under attack, like probably in no other time in uh, human history. And uh, John, I mean, you're someone who's been studying this for a long time. Why is it that in the 21st century we're seeing this long-standing doctrine of the Christian faith? As Ken says, it's actually in the creeds uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, why are we seeing uh, this uh, great attack on this uh, uh, biblical doctrine? Well, it's kind of a puzzle to me. Uh, you know, from the secular side, there's this myth about this warfare between Christianity and science. Mm. Um, again, I call it a myth because if you look historically, um, there's a Christian worldview that's at the foundation of getting science started in the 15 and 1600s. Um, so, so, yes, you have this sense of, of the two uh, build on each other. And again, God's created the world. We should be able to see his handiwork in the world that's there. Um, the more modern trend that puzzles me, though, is, is among some conservatives. Conservative Christians, you conservative mean. Christians that are trying to uh, isolate science from the Bible, and and uh, so so the attempt there is to say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that speaks to science whatsoever, um, and uh, yes, God created it and so on, but we can't draw any uh, scientific ideas or notions from the Bible whatsoever. And why do you think they're doing this? And um, what's the motivation? Again, I think they're maybe um, too, maybe they've fallen prey to the, to the conflict myth themselves. Um, maybe it's um, to avoid some of the tensions between Christianity and, and Darwinism and so on terms of where we came from. So, so I think there's, there's motivations behind making those statements. It's not just pure theology that's being revised, but it's, we want to sort of protect um, Christianity from science. So in one way to do that is to say, well, 
there's really nothing in the Bible that speaks to science today. Yeah, and you know, just reading that literature, it's like they're saying we do believe in dual revelation, but the two books are so far apart from one another yeah. that there's no possibility of one cooperating the other. But I like what you said. We have to recognize that it was the Bible and biblical theology that gave birth uh, to modern science. Yeah, yeah. John and uh, Ken here, what can we do to help uh, these theologians, and for that matter, these scientists who are basically saying, hey, we really do think uh, that there's something here we need to discuss. Uh, how can we get things uh, back on track? Well, I think just from one thing that I've seen, there's a lot of appeals done to, oh, what the ancient Near Eastern cultures around Israel and how they imagined the universe. And... Um, I think some of those things have been misunderstood. Well, that's your expertise. Yeah, and people will say, well, you know, the ancient Babylonians thought that there was a, that the heavens were just a dome overhead or something like that, and then people read the Bible that way as well. Um, that Israel had no view of the universe that was any different than the surrounding cultures. So one place we can start, at least from the ancient Near Eastern side is to say, well, wait, let's do a better appraisal of what the surrounding cultures thought. And um, it really is distinct, I think, from the Hebrew picture of the universe that you get. Right. Um, and then I think the other thing to take is the science side and to say, wow, gee, there is a valid concordism uh, between scriptural descriptions and insights into the nature of the universe and what we've discovered the universe to be. And I think, Hugh, those insights, I mean, the, the philosophical presuppositions or what you might call starting points for science are deeply rooted in biblical assumptions, biblical ideas. There's a real world out there. Um, it has patterns, regularity. Human beings have qualities because of the Imago Dei. We can track the intelligibility of nature. I think it was those presuppositions, those biblical, those historic Christian presuppositions that succeeded in birthing science. Uh, a lot of times there is a, a lack of appreciation, I think, for how much uh, Christianity has influenced the emergence uh, and then spread of science. Well, you probably have both noticed that the students that you teach don't seem to be very aware of this. Yeah. I mean, I'm old enough to realize even in my secular public school education, that was part of the curriculum. Now, looking at these uh, you know, scientists of the uh, Renaissance and the Reformation yeah, right. and recognizing yeah. how it was a Christian worldview that gave birth to the scientific revolution, so maybe just educating people and educating our peers. Yeah. yeah, better view for the history of science. And one interesting thing with the ex nihilo is that uh, that was the hottest tension between theology and science for about 900 years. Um, when the universities got started around 1100 AD, Aristotle was introduced and Aristotle had this idea that matter had always been here, it can't right. be created or destroyed. And that made a tension point for theologians looking at Genesis 1-1. And um, so there was this scramble of, well, how can we get Aristotle and the Bible to kind of fit together? Uh, but around 1930, that all changed. Yeah. 
you know, it's like, hey, there's a beginning to the universe now that science has discovered because prior to that, the common understanding in the world of physics and chemistry was that matter can't be created or destroyed. It's always been here. So one thing I would tell theologians is I think it's time to get with the program. You know, you're, you're defending, if you say there's no ex nihilo in the Bible, well, that was a battle from over a century ago. Yeah. And uh, today, it looks like our universe has a beginning, and that's what the Bible's been saying all along. So let's start there as a concordance. Thank God for, you know, Lemaitre and those scholars who who took uh, the two books idea seriously. And thank God for Einstein, because before Einstein, uh, he had Newtonian mechanics. And the only way you can keep the universe stable is to make it infinitely large and infinitely old. And so Isaac Newton, a Christian himself, uh, gave birth to this mechanics uh, that countered what the Bible was saying. But it was Einstein's theory of general relativity has said, hey, we don't need the universe to be infinitely old, and we don't need it to be infinitely extensive to make it stable. General relativity takes care of that. And then the solar eclipse of 1919, they affirmed that general relativity indeed uh, was a correct interpretation. And then that led to the theoretical calculation. There's a beginning, and Lemaitre and others pointed out, uh, you got Hubble saying, yeah. hey, this is really what the universe looks like. What I find interesting is the reaction of the astronomical community at the time. They said, we can't have this. This is too Christian. This is what the Bible teaches. We've got to find some way to get rid of this Big Bang. Hoyle even used Big Bang as a, really as a criticism. Um, yeah, you see it in the opening paragraph of his paper uh, where he uh, publishes his theory of a steady-state universe. Yeah. He says this idea of a beginning is repugnant. We've got to get rid of it. Uh, but hard as they try, it's not going yeah. away. The yeah. evidence gets stronger and stronger. So Genesis 1 really did get it right. Very yeah. good. Hello, Jeff Zwerink. Welcome to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we look at important scientific ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Hugh Ross. We're going to be investigating the consequences of an ice age. Hugh, it's good to have you here today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jeff. So we know that Earth has, has experienced a number of ice ages in the past, and there's a potential for having a new one. If we go into a new ice age, will that destroy humanity? It won't destroy humanity, but it'll certainly disrupt global high technology civilization. I mean, if you double the amount of ice covering the planet, that means fewer places for people to live. And also when you do go into an ice age, the climate becomes extremely unstable. So yeah, it's gonna be challenging. So kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit for us. I can see why having ice cover more of the earth would narrow down some of the places we could live, particularly I know in the United States, you're gonna get and cover up the Midwest, which is particularly relevant for growing crops, but why does it make it harder for the climate to be stable? What goes on there? Well, this is something we see in the ice age cycle that uh, you get these periods of uh, ice advancing and retreating, and it affects how much sunlight is reflected away because ice reflects sunlight with about 60% efficiency. 
And uh, you also get greater seasonal differences. I mean, you're talking about you know, parts of the North Midwest, but the truth is uh, during an ice age, San Diego's harbor becomes frozen over for six months of the year. Even some of the Mexican harbors get uh, frozen over. So uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's not pleasant. And uh, we've seen that, I mean, we've had an ice age cycle for the past 2.58 million years. The only time in that cycle where we've had climate stability has been the last 9,500 years. Uh, you know, amazing things happened in our interglacial that made possible uh, climate stability. Previous interglacials were characterized by extreme climate instability, as were the glacials. What we're seeing right now is the exception. So I want to come back to that because I think that's pretty important. Uh, just kind of give us a little bit of background. How often do these ice ages happen? I mean, we're talking a few thousand years. We're talking global warming. We're worried about that over the span of a century, maybe a millennia. What's the time frame for these ice age cycles? And can we prevent one? Can we prevent the next one from happening? Well, from 2.58 million years ago to 800,000 years ago, the periodicity was 41,000 years. For the last 800,000 years, it's been approximately 100,000 years, as characterized by 90,000 years of an ice age and roughly 10,000 years of an interglacial. So what is it that causes that? I'm, I'm gathering that's not just how much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, how much greenhouse gases. It seems like there's something got to be something beyond the Earth that's causing those things. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, rarely has Earth had an ice age cycle. That only happens when you've got a very delicate balance between the planet having no ice at all and the planet being completely frozen over. And for the last 2.58 million years, we've been in that delicate balance. But it's happening at a time when the sun's been brighter than it's ever been before, literally 23% brighter than it was at the origin of life. And so I'd describe in weathering climate change, is how three successive asteroidal collisions, major asteroids colliding with the Earth, cooled down the Earth and brought the Earth from a hot, warm condition into this delicate balance where an ice age cycle uh, could be initiated. Oddly enough, if I get what you're saying, by warming the globe up, we might be initiating an ice age rather than kind of runaway greenhouse heating, if you will, correct? That's correct. I mean, yeah, that's why I think it's important if we want to delay the onset of the next ice age, that we make certain that we don't in any significant way melt the winter polar ice cap. Now, a lot of attention's gotten onto the summer polar ice cap, which has shrunk very significantly. But when you shrink the summer ice cap, you basically put more rain on Siberia and Canada but when you melt the winter polar ice cap, now you deposit snow on Siberia and Canada. So that's what we need to watch. Make sure that in no significant way do we melt the polar winter polar ice cap. Is this the sort of thing we can prevent the ice age from coming or is it just possible to delay it? And roughly by how much would you say? I mean, we're looking at delay. I mean, uh, it's inevitable an ice age is going to come but we don't have to make it come uh, you know, 50 years from now. We can put it off for a millennium, maybe even a millennium and a half. Uh, so uh, uh, that's certainly within uh, the realm of human possibility. And in weathering climate change, I described several ways that can be done while we boost the world economy. No need to sacrifice the world economy 
it can be done while we boost the world economy and also boost uh, the world's ecosystems. So it's hard to get away from the fact. So it seems like we've got this ice age that's inevitable, the time scale a uh, little, little more ambig ambiguous there. But when you read scripture, you see that there's an end times where there are some pretty catastrophic things happening, that there's starvation and wars and famines and things like that. What does an ice age play into, or is there any correlation between an ice age and what we see described in the end times in the Bible? There could be. I mean, we could actually delay the ice age more than about 1500 years. But if we do that, uh, we melt all the ice uh, in the Tibetan plateau, the Rockies, uh, the Andes, uh, the Alps. And when that happens, you don't have enough water uh, to feed the planet. Uh, we're able to feed seven and a half billion people because of the melting of ice left over from the last ice age. So that's the ultimate limitation. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you uh, bring on uh, the next ice age earlier than that, then yeah, a lot of people have got to exit from Canada and Siberia and Finland and Sweden. So you've got massive migration issues uh, and you will bring on climate instability. And with climate instability, you're not going to be able to feed uh, billions of people. Well, thanks, you. I really appreciate your comments. It's just impossible to talk about climate change and ice ages and global warming without getting a lot of political discussion in there. But what's fascinating is when we look at scripture, we find that God has created this world designed it very well and also given us charge over it. And so there's lots of things we can do to take care of the planet, recognizing that there is going to be an end times and we need to be prepared for that. You know, I would encourage you to go to reasons.org. Hugh's written a great, great series of blogs on this called The End of Civilization as We Know It. It's a three-part series. So if you search for The End of Civilization on reasons.org, you'll get access to those three blogs, see what will happen in an ice age, what are things we can do to take care of it, and how we can use this issue to share the gospel with others. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. You know, I really enjoyed really just um, unpacking the book of Revelation mm -hmm. and understanding the different genres too, to right. like not rely on, um, you know, looking for the book of Revelation to tell us um, literal things, mm -hmm. but that there's symbolism involved. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was really cool in Everyday Apologetics having three scholars yeah. to explain one topic, just so that we can kind of see it from every angle, hear a lot of um, discussion for that. So I yeah. thought it was great. Well, you know what? If you want to subscribe to the show, please do so. And then also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819 show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And you know what? This topic came from viewers. So if you mm -hmm. have a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. Yeah. And if you would like the audio version of the show, you can subscribe on most major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. See ya.